ready to sing with me? It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel... All right, some of you know R.E.M. All right, when I was growing up, R.E.M. was kind of a popular band. I guess that dates me a little bit. Maybe some of you are in that range. I'll never forget the morning I woke up. I don't remember how old I was, sixth or seventh grade or so. And I woke up to Akron, Ohio. It's where I was born. Well, not born, sorry. It's where I was raised. And uh, WKDD, 96.5 FM. This is back when people used radios to wake up in the morning. And um, I'll never forget. It came on that morning, and that was the song that came on. I'm a slow waker-upper. I don't know if that's a title or not, but I just don't wake up fast. And uh, it kind of took me a while, and so I finally got out of bed. And I noticed when the song ended, they played it again. I thought, well, that was weird. So I went and got a shower and came back in my room. I left my radio on. It was still on. Well, that was weird. My sister was talking about it. Did you notice on WKDD, which doesn't even, I don't even think it exists anymore. I don't know. And she's like, did you notice that they're still playing REMs? It's the end of the world as we know it. I'm like, yeah, I did. What's going on? She's like, I don't know. Do you think they know something? <laughs> and everybody else missed it. She didn't say that. But so literally you go to school and it was the buzz. You know, of course, middle schoolers. It was the buzz. It was going on, you know, and, and everybody's talking about it. <gasps> Maybe it's the end of the world. And then by the time you're on your way home, like other radio stations are making fun of it literally all day long for an entire day. It might have gone longer. I don't know. All day long. That's all they played over and over and over. And I seriously wondered, is this it? And here's what happened. Um, their company got bought out by another company. And so they thought it would be funny on their last day if that's how they... It's the end of the world as they knew it. But I use that as a springboard into a bigger conversation. Has something ever happened in your life that made you wonder, is this it? You saw a red moon. There was a car accident. There was a cataclysmic moment. You watched the news. Something happened and you wondered, Surely this is it. I've literally, since we started doing this series, I've had people coming up to me and telling me about the family members or especially older ones, people who've watched America change and they've literally said, I don't know when, but Jesus has to be coming back because I see where America is heading. Now, I, maybe we'll get to deal with that sooner, but let me just make this one statement that'll probably offend some, and I hope you give me grace if you don't understand what I'm saying. God's calendar is not hung up on the nation of America. It's not. So if our entire nation becomes 1% Christian, like much of the Muslim world today, Jesus may still not yet return because he is not holding on the eternal calendar based off one nation, no matter what anybody says. So while I watch America falling apart at the seams in some ways, the answer to that is still the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you've ever wondered, when is Jesus coming back? Today is the closest I will ever get to making that prediction. Aren't you glad you came? <laughs> Here we go. When is Jesus coming back? Here's the question. Here's my answer. Suddenly. <laughs> Let me show it to you. <laughs> Let me show it to you real quick. I want to show you a couple quotes before we dig into the Bible. Um, there's a guy out there, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, his name is Tim LaHaye. You ever, how many of you have heard of Tim LaHaye? Okay, that means you didn't have your head in the sand. Okay, Tim LaHaye and a guy named Jerry Jenkins wrote some books called Left Behind. Left Behind, and I will talk more about this later in the series, comes from what's known as a dispensational premillennial perspective. And some of you just went, who, what? I know. 
But if you read the books, you get a good idea of at least a fictionalized version of a dispensational premillennial perspective. That's not where I landed. I don't care if that's where you land. Seriously, I don't, one of us is going to be right. Maybe it's neither one of us, to be honest. Jesus is going to come back one day, and when he does, he's going to come back suddenly. And I'll show that to you in a minute. But the reason I wanted to use all that to set that up is to say, I want to read you some quotes throughout the sermon by Tim LaHaye, who he and I didn't land at the same place, but we do land on the same place in this regard. Take a look. Here's a couple quotes by Tim LaHaye. First, at the outset of his book, Are We Living in the End Times? He says, at the outset, however, we wish to state categorically that we refuse to predict that Christ will come in our lifetime. For he may delay his coming another 50 years or more. Here's another one. Properly taught, <clears throat> prophecy emphasized the imminent or immediate, that's what that word means, return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. If you have a perspective of the second coming of Jesus that says Jesus' return is still somewhere out into the future, in other words, he can't come back until certain events take place, then you do not have a biblical perspective on the second coming of Jesus. And I don't say that to offend you. I say that to caution you. Let me show you to you in the scriptures now. Matthew 24. We're actually in the book of Revelation today, I promise, but this is all set up for where we're going today. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 in the New Living Translation says this. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Now, I can't do justice to this one verse alone. This is huge in the Jewish biblical motif. The temple is the center of the Hebrew people. It has been. If you go all the way back to their desert wanderings after they left uh, Pharaoh in Egypt, they had a tabernacle, and it was where God came down, and Moses, and presence of God, and then a temple, and then another temple. And the temple is a big deal. This is where they offer sacrifices. If you're a sinner, by the way, that's everybody in the room, but if you're a sinner and you want to be right with God, you need a sacrifice. You can't overcome your own faults and failures and sins through your own good deeds. So what do you do? You sacrifice. But what do you do when there's nowhere to sacrifice? Jesus is here with the disciples and he says, you guys are so impressed with this temple. By the way, the temple was magnificent. Magnificent. Maybe later in the series and we get through later in Revelation, maybe even in January, I'll talk about the temple and what it looked like. Massive, even grape, literally structures and just beautiful and huge and literally had these um, stones that were the base of the temple. And I think I read this week, if I, get, if I get this wrong and I correct myself later, I'm trying to pull this one out of memory. I think it said that, that one of these stones weighed 200,000 pounds, if I'm remembering that correctly. Huge. It's kind of one of those, we're not sure how they did it or put it in place, given that they didn't have our technology today, because we always think we're smarter. But we're, Jesus is looking at this thing, and, and they're enamored by it. Look at this temple. This is the center of worship. People come to worship you, God. Isn't this awesome? And Jesus goes, meh. One day, this will all be torn down. What? Like, Jesus, you just threw a grenade into the disciples' perspective and thinking. You're going to come. You're going to be the priest and Messiah of Israel. You're going to reign. This will probably be one of your home sites. This will be maybe major places you teach from. All the nations are going to come here and gather to give honor to you because you're going to be king. This temple is going to be your temple. What are you talking about? 
Jesus walks out of the city, kind of goes up on a hill, and he's looking back at the temple with the disciples. Verse 3, the New Living, New Living Translation says this, Later Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all of this happen? And what will be a sign? What, sorry, what sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Now, the New Living Translation did a good job here, not a great job. I like the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. It's the most literal translation, which makes it hard to read in your daily devotional time because sometimes it's so literal, you know, eh? But they do a better job of getting the Greek to English correlation exact. Again, that's part of what makes it clunky at times. New Living does a better job being readable. But I want to show you the same verse, the same part in the NASB. I think it's clearer what Jesus is being asked. Here we go. The NASB of Matthew 24, 3. Tell us, when will these things happen and... What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is really being asked two questions. Question number one, this whole destruction, demolition of the temple, when, when is that going to happen, Jesus? And number two, when are you coming back? When are you coming a second time? What Jesus does next in Matthew 24 is he answers those questions and it bridges into Matthew 25. However, good godly scholars don't fully agree on exactly when Jesus stops answering question one and when he starts answering question two. What we do know is pretty much everybody agrees Jesus immediately goes into answering question number one, the destruction of the temple. And some stop it right around verse 11 and others much later in the text. And where you stop it dictates how you understand what we call eschatology. That's the study of the second coming of Jesus. So where you stop dictates things. And honestly, for our conversation today, it's just not relevant. As much as you want to know, it's not relevant for where we're going today in Revelation. What is relevant is what I want to pick up at the end of this conversation in verse 36. In verse 36, Orthodox Christianity would say at some point Jesus has turned to the second coming and everybody would agree on this point. And anybody who doesn't agree that Jesus is coming back a second time is outside of Orthodox Christianity. There is a world out there who teaches that Jesus is never coming back again. They are outside of Orthodox Christianity. If they're not a heretic, they are dancing on the line. I want to be clear here. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus has now turned his attention to the second coming. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. This is huge because one of the popular teachings today from the multi, multi, multi million dollar industry known as end times prophecy is that you may not know the exact day or the hour, but you can know the month. You might even know the week. You might even get it down to a three-day span. You won't know exactly which day. I mean, you're going to know. It's going to come this Monday through Saturday. We don't know if it's going to be Wednesday or Thursday or exactly if it's going to be noon or one. But Jesus said you wouldn't know the day or the hour. He didn't say you wouldn't know the month. You are missing the point. Jesus isn't trying to say you'll know it down to the exact detail minus the final point. The point is you won't know. If you have a theology of Jesus' return that involves signs that must occur before his return, 
then your perspective isn't his perspective. Here's how I know. Because of what Jesus says next. Verse 24, chapter 24, verse 37. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. And those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, remember back then when the floods came, everyone went, ah! Same way here. There will literally be people who have spent nine months planning their wedding. Tens of thousands of dollars will have gone into this puppy. And the husband and the wife will be standing there at the altar. And he'll have said, hey, baby, I do for better or worse, for richer or poorer for the rest of our lives. Let's go to Hawaii. And she'll be looking at him. And she'll just be about to utter the words, I do. And suddenly, suddenly, Jesus is going to return. It's going to happen. And no one's going to expect it to happen. Tim LaHaye, who I don't fully agree with, but I think he's a good man, I think. He's a godly man. He says this, A study of signs of the end of the age or the return of Christ should always be undertaken with a degree of restraint. Date setters are to be ignored or even better rebuked as false teachers. It mystifies us that men would try to set dates for the return of Christ in view of the warning of our Lord himself. Now here's the point. There was a guy who wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. <laughs> Guess what? He was wrong. He wrote another book, 89 Reasons. True story. What was his name? Harold Campman? Campman? You hear about that a couple years ago? Put up signs everywhere. He'd worked it out. He did the math. He knew exactly when Jesus was going to return. Guess what? He was wrong. You know what happened after that? His math was off. So he readjusted his math and he made a new prediction. And guess what? He was wrong. This guy led a church of roughly 5,000 people, had a huge radio ministry. Today, there's just, I think, a few hundred people left in his church. And should be. The Bible is very clear about this kind of thing. For those who are setting dates out there and they're wrong, do you know what the Bible calls that? False prophecy. And Jesus has no patience for it. None. Because if you're going to speak on the Lord's behalf, one of the keys to being God is to be able to predict the future with utmost accuracy so that you're never wrong. And if God was ever, ever, ever wrong, do you know what that would mean? He's not God. That means he makes mistakes. He never makes mistakes. That means he doesn't know the future. He's taking a good guess, and if his guess is off, guys, this goes against what we believe about God. So anybody you ever read, anybody you ever listen to who is predicting a date, ignore them. And honestly, they're a heretic. Because the reality is, Jesus could come back at any moment. Let me show you this. Jesus goes on, just to make the point even clearer. Verse 40 of Matthew 24. Two men will be working together in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Later in our series, I'll go through all this conversation about the rapture and what are the views on the rapture and what's it mean in the rapture and whether the rapture is a rapture. And Anyway, um, the whole point here is don't, don't lose the forest and the trees. That's the thing I want to remind you. Don't lose the forest and the trees. Jesus is trying to give an illustration 
He's not necessarily trying to take us back to the 70s. We got, you know, Christian Jesus freak rock, and it's like, you know, I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking. You guys know that song? Up a hill. DC Talk made it popular, not me. Anyway, the point here isn't to be legalistic. The point here is to understand what Jesus is saying. People will be going about normal life. Literally, there'll be two people hiking around, walking up a hill, carrying some water. There'll be two people grinding in the flour mill. There'll be two people working at the local newspaper. There'll be a husband and a wife fighting in their kitchen, yelling and screaming, and maybe he's just about to hit her. And Jesus is going to come back in the middle of it. There'll be a, a woman who seduced her boss. And even though he's married and has kids, she doesn't care. And they found a little secret getaway. And they think it's okay because they've got time, but Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be sudden. There's going to be a young man who's not married yet and he's got his cell phone out and he's hiding in his room and he thinks it's just, you know, a few images. It's not that big of a deal. And Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be somebody working on their taxes. And they're thinking to themselves, the government has plenty of money. It's just a little number here. It's just a small thing there. And Jesus is going to come back while they're doing it. I see, this is the point. When you have a biblical, eschatological viewpoint that Jesus can return literally at any moment, it changes the way you look at life. This thing now that I think I can get away with and I have time to deal with later, I have time to repent of later, I have time to figure out later, Jesus is saying, you don't have the kind of time you think you have. And one generation is going to be right. One generation, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to come back suddenly and he's going to be right. And the question for all of us is the same question Jesus is proposing in Matthew 24. That is, are you ready? Look at the rest of what he says, Matthew 24, and then we'll jump into Revelation, verse 42. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. This analogy of a thief, don't press Jesus' analogies beyond what he had planned for them to be pressed. This analogy of a thief is simple. Back in the day, they had these uh, clay thatch roofs and people would wait till they fell asleep. Then a thief would show up and he'd dig usually in the roof and he'd sneak into the house or the roof. He'd take what he wanted and he'd sneak back out. And what Jesus is saying is, look, if you knew that the thief was coming on Wednesday at 1 a.m. or whatever it is, you'd be ready. You don't even have to know which part of the house he's showing up in. You'd just have your butcher knife out. You'd be ready to go. So when he showed up, you'd chase him out of there again. Jesus is saying in the same way, you don't know exactly what day or hour I'm going to show up. So what do you do? You'd be ready all the time. Now, if you press the analogy too far, you're like, I'm never supposed to sleep, Jesus. No. The point is, you are always, always, always prepared. Now, with that kind of setup, let's turn our attention to chapter 3 now of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the church of Sardis. Let's read and jump in. I got lots to cover and not a lot of time. Surprise. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one 
who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Let's just stop there for a second. Let's come all the way back. I'll just point this out real quick. This could be a whole sermon in itself. Notice in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus has this description of himself that he gives to John. And one of those descriptions is the sevenfold spirit of God and these seven stars. I've told you the seven stars is kind of a slap in the face to Domitian's son who was worshipped as the son of God because Domitian, the Roman emperor, was worshipped as God. However, so part of what Jesus is saying there is, I hold the seven stars in my hand, the seven stars, I've got the seven churches, I've got the whole world in my hand. That's what he's saying there. But the one I really want to point out to you, because that's nothing new, is this other piece of the equation, the sevenfold spirit of God. In Revelation chapter 1, we're told about the sevenfold spirit of God, and seven, remember, equals completion. Something is complete. What he's saying is the complete spirit of God, the full spirit of God. But now in Revelation 3, Jesus flipped it a little. He says, I hold the sevenfold spirit of God. Now, for a Christian who's been around the church block for most of your life, this isn't new information. This is old news to you. But for those of you still trying to check out Jesus and figure out who he is, this is maybe new news to you. This is huge because what Jesus is saying in one very small kind of metaphoric symbol is simply this. God has given me all authority under heaven and earth. All of earth is under my authority. That's the seven uh, stars, all authority of heaven, the sevenfold spirit of God, the, literally the spirit of God is in my hand. He does what I tell him to do. That's huge. Jesus says to, to the disciples, John 14, 15, 16, right before he goes off to be crucified, he says to them, guys, I need to leave you. And they're freaking out. Where are you going so we can go with you? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. You're not going with me. You need to stay here. And by the way, it's better for you if I leave. Why would that be better for us? You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. And he says, no, see, if I leave, I will send one after me. And he will be God in you. I am, in other words, I am, Jesus saying, God with you. When he comes, he'll be God in you. And that's better for you. Because me with you, I can teach you and equip you and empower you. Him in you, he can actually fuel your love and your life. He will give you the power from on high but it's jesus doing the sending this is huge revelation chapter 3 now look at what he says to them verse 1 the second half there i know all the things you do it's a statement of intimacy i'm well aware of what's going on in your life i know everything about you and i know that you have a reputation for being alive but you are a zombie he says well in modern translations that's what he's saying you are the walking dead Here's the whole point of what Jesus is saying. The church in Sardis, unlike the other churches, has it easy. It's not overly hard to be a Christian in Sardis. They don't have the intense persecution and death and arrests and, and their life in danger that many of these other cities have. What they have in Sardis is a lot of money. Sardis is a very wealthy city. In fact, if you go all the way back to the 6th century BC, BCE, depending on how you want to count that, there was a guy named King Croesus. You may have heard of him. And Croesus was a very, very wealthy king. In fact, he's the one who first created money. Well, we would look at money today, kind of a crude metal coin of sorts, but he was the first one to do it because he had a lot of money. Sardis always had a lot of money. Even in Jesus' day, even in John's day, Sardis was a wealthy community. And so to be a Christian in Sardis, it wasn't hard. There wasn't a lot of persecution. You could worship him or not and apparently the christians and excuse me sardis had started to not now on the outside everybody thought they had it together 
But on the inside, Jesus says, no, but I know who you really are. You can't fake me. And you can fool your neighbor. You can fool your spouse. You can fool the church. But you can't fool me. Do you ever meet those people that um, when they fall, you think to yourself, man, I thought they had the perfect life. Now, as Christians, the job isn't to point a finger and condemn. The point is to love and to rebuke and then to walk back into a right relationship. What Jesus is doing with the church in Sardis is extremely gracious. He's pointing out to them this thing that they don't want to admit. That though on the outside it looks like everything is together, on the inside they are wasting away and he sees it. They are dead, he says. So he's calling them out of hypocrisy. This is huge. For God to look at them through Jesus and say, look, I know that you are faking it. You have everybody fooled, but you don't have me fooled. He's saying to them, I love you enough to tell you the truth about who you are. Verse 3. Sorry, verse 2. Wake up! The phrase here for wake up, that's a, that's a fine translation, but it misses the bigger point, the story of what's going on that I get to tell you in a minute. The Greek here literally says, be watchful, which doesn't really mean much to us, but it will mean a lot to the people of Sardis. I'll get there in a second. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. In other words, you're like 98% dead on the inside. There's 2% left. Take what little is left, and rather than let it die and do nothing, Take it and strengthen it. Work with it. Mold it. Return to me. In fact, he says that. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Do you see the connection to what Jesus is saying? I'm going to return suddenly. And you're not going to be ready. And you're going to be ashamed. Get ready now. It's huge. If you notice here, I just think it's interesting. If, if somebody were to come to me and say, Matt, I'm stuck in a sin and I don't know what to do. I would say, you need to repent. What do you mean? I, you need to fall on your knees. You need to confess your sin to God. You need to say, God, here's what I did wrong. And then you need to stop. You need to start living for God. That's what we do. We repent, we confess, and then we change. Jesus flipped it here. In Revelation 3, he says, you need to return and do the things you were told to do and repent. It's like, Jesus, you got those out of order. No, I didn't. <laughs> Jesus, okay, you're right. I don't get to argue with you. What Jesus is trying to say here is this. You used to do the right things. You used to be sold out to me. You used to be committed to me. Go back to what you used to be. Go back to what you used to believe. Go back to how you used to live. Repent and return to me. And do the things you used to do. He's flipping it because at one point, whether it was another generation, maybe it was even their parents' generation, their grandparents' generation. I know this is some of your stories. You know, your grandparents were so committed to Jesus. And your parents slipped away and now you've slipped away. But you're here and you're wrestling with God. And he's saying, come back and do the things that you used to do. Your family used to be focused on him. Come back to that. Repent. Return. Don't keep going. And part of what's going on here, the whole be watchful thing, I love this. Sardis, let me show you some pictures of Sardis real quick. Here's back-to-back -back pictures of Sardis. This is modern day. Look at these mountains. Isn't that beautiful? Fantastic weather, mountainous. I want to go. Anybody want to pay for it? Okay. Let me show you the other one. Here's kind of some old ruins of Sardis. 
Notice those tall mountain peaks. It literally sits surrounded by these mountain peaks. It sat at a road connected to five major cities. Some of the cities we've talked about, like Pergamum and Ephesus, and I could go on, but you get the idea. Because of its location, it had a premier place for people coming and going. It was a great stopover. Because of its location with the mountains surrounding all the way around it, it literally was like a citadel. It was so safe from outside attack, not only because of the mountains around it, but it also had these strong, tall, impenetrable walls. Well, almost impenetrable. Sardis has a history to it, like many of these cities, that really illuminates what Jesus is trying to say. In Sardis, uh, in the 6th century, King Croesus, who I told you about, he was at war with a guy named Cyrus. You may have heard of him. And Cyrus, and he has a going battle. Cyrus chased him up to this point where he's looking down to the city and he's got his men over there. If I'm understanding the story correctly, this is written about by many historians, which isn't really all that common, which tells you that there's validity to the story. But as it's told, uh, King Cyrus made a plea to his men and he said, anybody who can figure out how we can get into that city and take it, I want to take this city, there will be a special reward. One of his men went over and started to watch this city and he noticed supposedly, according to Herodotus, this uh, ancient historian, he noticed a soldier on top of the wall and his helmet fell off. He watched the soldier climb down the wall. He watched him scale down the mountainside. He watched him recover his helmet, go back up the mountainside, back up on top of the wall. And as he watched it, he made a mental note of all the places exactly where he went. That night, he gathered together just a small clan of people. He scaled the mountain in the night just like he watched the soldier do. He climbed to the citadel, and when he got to the top, he was ready for a battle, and there was no one there. See, literally, the, the people inside the walls had gotten lazy. They believed they were impenetrable. They believed they couldn't fall. They believed they couldn't fail. So they didn't even place somebody on the wall. King Cyrus took Sardis that day because this small band of men went and literally opened the front doors, and Cyrus came storming in with his army. And the entire city fell. Now, in addition to that, in about 214 B.C., the city fell again to another king named Antiochus, and the reason they fell is because some of his men found another spot in Sardis's impenetrable wall, found another spot where there was no one placed, and they snuck in, literally opened the gates, and again, Antiochus came in. This was such a huge part of Sardis's personality that a guy named Strabo, another historian, he writes about how big these walls are and the way he was impressed into their culture and into their thinking. See, if you're from Sardis, you believe that you are impenetrable. You are that city that cannot fall, it cannot fail but you know at least two times where that has happened and this is a really big deal so when Jesus says to the church in Sardis be watchful don't fall down on the job don't fall asleep don't think that just because you're in a city and it looks like everything is safe that you don't have to be awake and fruitful and think about the way that applies especially to Christians in America today Sardis was a wealthy city Guys, let me just say this. Well, this will be bigger next week we get to Laodicea. Wealth is one of the greatest enemies to the kingdom of God. God doesn't have a problem with money. Never has. But wealth will trick you into laziness. Unless you don't think you're wealthy, I'll prove it to you. Just not today. Well, let me tell you this. If you've got a house and you've got air conditioning, you've got a car, you've got food, you've got indoor plumbing, you're rich. You may not think you're rich, and that's okay. 
That's a heart issue. You're not appreciative yet, the fact that you're rich. I thank God every day that I'm rich. I thank God that he's made me rich. I thank God that I live in the richest nation the world has ever known. Thank you, Jesus. I drive a Ford Focus wagon. It's a piece of junk, but it's my piece of junk, and I love it. Now, now my wife drives a brand new nice car, all right? So I'm a smart husband, let me tell you. All right. I say this because wealth lulls us to sleep. It makes us stop depending on God. Spiritually, we can buy our way out of a lot of problems. But we can't buy our way into a right relationship with God. And the people of Sardis have been tempted by the lack of pressure, the lack of hard situations, the lack of need. See, when you're desperate for your daily bread, that's amazing how you're on your knees before God because you don't know how you're going to eat and feed your family that day. But when you have plenty and you just dip into the credit card or the bank account or mom and dad or whoever it is, you don't have anything to worry about. And when you don't have anything to worry about, you don't have to be desperate for God. And Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, you need to be desperate for me because you've fallen asleep and you've fallen away. And it may look like you got it all together, like you're all good on the outside. You're not, and I know it, and you're not fooling me. And see, some of you, even as I'm saying this, you know that the Spirit of God is talking to you. You know it. Because he's been telling you something for a long time. And you're just like, no, God, I got time. I got time. I got time. That's because you believe the lie that Jesus' return isn't going to happen literally, maybe even today. So don't deal with it. Keep putting it off. Don't repent. You got time. Don't change. It's too hard. Except for when that last day does finally come, maybe even before we finish our services today, I don't want you to be ashamed. I don't want you to be caught off guard. So what do you need to do with that? Revelation chapter 3 verse 4. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy and all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. So much to cover and not enough time. Um, that's why we're making these videos on the blog, to try to take some of the content further I ran out of time for. I'll just say this quickly. One of the things Sardis was well known for was its dyes. So they had very colorful clothing. It's one of the major businesses of commerce that they did. Part of what Jesus is saying is there are some among you who don't just have the outward looking of beautiful colors and clothes, but you actually in your hearts are committed to me and you're wearing white. White would be like the unpopular color. Your clothes haven't been soiled. Your clothes haven't been tainted. You don't just play the game and look like you're playing the part on the outside. You actually are walking with me, and I have clothed you with white. Clothing with white throughout the Old Testament is, a, is a, literally a biblical metaphor for purity. We see this on the great day of atonement before the high priest can go in and offer his sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 16. Before he goes in there, he literally would change his clothes. He would wash completely. He would put on white clothes. He'd make a sacrifice. He'd do the whole thing again, and then he would go in. And we see throughout the end of Revelation, Revelation 19 and 20, and I actually believe it's also in chapters 11 and 12. I can't remember that exactly. But we see the white clothing of the saints, of the martyrs. And it's this whole idea of they've not allowed this world to soil them. They've not allowed this world to mark them. They have stayed committed and pure. By the way, I love this. Uh, last week, after a, 
after some of the services, one couple came up to me who've been living together and said, Matt, we've been talking about it. We, would you take our vows like soon? Because we realize we're not living in a way that honors Jesus. I'm so proud of them. Other people came up to me and said, look, uh, I'm, I'm not living with my girlfriend, my fiance, the way I need to be. We, we've been sleeping together. We're not married yet. What do we do? I said, you stop. If you need to move out, you move out. We hear this all the time. We can't afford it. You can't afford not to do it. But we literally, like we've done the math, okay? Then one of you go live on a couch of a family member or friend. You don't have to get your own apartment and you keep paying the money towards the place and let her stay there. If you want God to bless your marriage, then live in a way that honors him. And I know that's hard and it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't add up financially, by the way. Serving Jesus rarely ever adds up financially. Rarely ever. And the reason I say that is because to come to Jesus is going to cost you something. Now, don't get me wrong. You can't buy heaven. I'm just saying when you come to him, you're submitting to him not just as Savior but as Lord. And when you submit to him as Lord, you start to look at the world differently. It's not about how do I get. It's about how do I give. And when you start to have that perspective about life, man, it costs you something. And man, it costs you the greatest thing ever because you get to partner with him in what he's doing in this world. But it's hard. I'm not going to lie to you. Some of you probably should leave here today and be a little upset and offended and uncomfortable and maybe not come back. But my only ask of you, if you're in that boat, if right now you're like, I don't like this preacher. He's, you know, he's offending me. My only ask of you is that you go wrestle with God and not with me. You go test what I'm saying against what he says. And if you find it to be true, then do something different than what you've always done. Submit to him. And come back to Revelation because I want to talk about this people group. This group of people who refuses to be soiled. They continue to walk in faithfulness to him. Notice in verse 5, all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. The book of life is used throughout the Old Testament in Exodus and in Psalms. There's a quote in the app that I don't have time to get to there. It's by Bruce Metzger. It's a great little quote to give you some perspective. One of the things that's going on with this uh, book of life kind of concept is in Rome, they literally had books of citizenship. So the people of Sardis would literally have to write their names into the book. And the only way you got out of the book was to die or commit treason. And part of what Jesus is saying is, even when you die, I will never take your name out of my book. See, in, in Sardis, when you died, your name came out of the book. And part of what Jesus is saying is, see, if you are faithful to me when you die, your name stays in the book. Meaning, one day when you're brought into an eternal right relationship with me, we'll be together forever. Death won't be the end, death will be the new beginning. And this new beginning doesn't last for 50 years or 80 years or even 120 years if you're lucky enough. This new beginning is going to last for eternity. There's a statement in that, guys. When Jesus says, trade me the things of this world for eternity, he's saying it's a trade worth making. There's another point, we'll talk about this later, especially next week, where Jesus says, look, you... You literally can't buy heaven, but you can invest in heaven. You can pay it forward. The things you do on earth to leverage what God has given you here, there's a reward on the other end of that in heaven. What is that reward? I don't even know. I can only tell you what the Bible says about it. But here's what I know. When you get there, it'll be worth it. So Jesus is saying, trade me. Because what you're going to have there is better than what you can have here. Now let me show you a little bit of a foretaste of that. Revelation 20, verse 11. This is at the end, second to last chapter in Revelation. I keep referring back to it because the end of Revelation and the beginning of Revelation are like the intro and the conclusion. 
Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. That's Jesus. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. That's a statement about his sovereignty. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. In other words, everything dead is now standing before his throne. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what we would call today hell, and a lot of people are afraid to talk about it. I'm not. It's just not today's subject. I'll get to it most likely in January when we talk about heaven and hell and things in between, if Jesus hasn't come back yet. Now, the thing to note about hell is when hell is talked about throughout the Bible, it's never pleasant. There are words like lake of fire, sulfur, weeping and gnashing of teeth, where worms... Uh, eat at things and where people aren't destroyed and, and, and it's just crazy like all of these symbols are they all true the whole point of symbolism in the bible and anywhere is to give verbiage to something that is so intense you don't have words so the author tries to pick words that are painting the picture now does that mean it's literally fire i don't know here's what i do know if the words are trying to symbolically paint a picture of something that is horrible, and yet those words probably fail short to paint the picture as bad as it really is, whether it literally is or literally isn't fire, what you need to know is it's going to suck. Worse than anything you've ever experienced here. And guys, this is the worst that it is ever going to get. And there's a reason why Jesus says these things, because there's a motivation. There's two kinds of motivation in life. There's positive and there's negative. Positive motivation is far more effective than negative motivation, but there is a place for negative motivation. Positive motivation is there's a reward, there's a blessing, there's a benefit. Clothed in white, victorious, negative motivation is lake of sulfur, lake of fire. Both are a reality. Jesus is saying, you don't have to have that. You can have this. Look at all the great things that I'm going to do that I've promised for those who are victorious and hang on or faithful to the very end. I'm going to do fantastic things. You're going to be with me reigning and ruling and, and you're going to be my temple and you're going to be working for me. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be no more pain, no more crying, and no more tears, and no more death. All of that stuff is in the other place. Now, you can go there if you want, but it's going to be really, really, really bad. You don't want that. You want that. Paul says it like this, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now concerning how and when all of this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. When people are saying, everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And all the women in the room went, amen. And there will be no escape meaning it will be too late. There isn't going to be a second chance. Whatever your eschatological view is, if there is a second chance, it's not the appropriate one. There will be no escape. When Jesus comes back, it will be it. Verse 4. 
but you aren't in the darkness about these things. In other words, you weren't clueless. Dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. I don't ever want to be responsible for making you question salvation because that's not a good thing. You are saved by grace through faith, but let me make this clear. We will know your faith by your actions. Jesus says that my sheep know my voice. They listen to my voice. They do what I tell them. Jesus says, everybody who loves me will obey me. If you're not being obedient to Jesus, it begs the question, do you love him? Because if you don't, you might not be in the light. You might actually be in the dark. And that's something you ought to wrestle with. Matthew 7 is the most scary and intense verse I've ever come across, including everything in Revelation, because Jesus says this, on that day, on that last day, many will cry out, Lord, Lord, look what we did in your name. We prophesied and we healed people and we, we, we performed miracles all in your name. And Jesus says, and I will look at them and say, away from me, you evildoers, I never even knew you. And you go, how is that possible, Jesus? I mean, how do I actually perform a miracle in your name? That's pretty cool. And yet Jesus goes, I don't know you. You're just taking advantage of my name. I got to be honest, guys. So the day I die, I will wrestle with that verse. Not in a way that makes me wonder, am I saved by grace through faith? But in a way that makes me says, does Jesus really know me? Or am I just playing a game to look good for others? Because that's essentially what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. Some of you are playing a game and you know it and God knows it, but nobody else knows it because you fooled everybody. And Jesus is doing the most gracious thing he could do, and he's saying to you, stop trying to fool everybody and start walking with me. So on the last day, instead of hearing away from me, I never knew you, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Unless there be any question, what is a good and faithful servant? Jesus makes it crystal clear back to Matthew 24, verse, <clears throat> I have verse 45 in here. There's a typo in my notes. I hope they have it too. If not, I'll read it. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master could give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is Jesus at about as bad as he ever gets. And what do you make of that? Like, is that literal? All I know is you don't want to know. Here's where I'm going to close. Guys, I don't know when Jesus is going to return. We might not even make it to the next service. So if you think I got a week, a month, a year, you don't, you might, but you don't know. If today is the day you hear the voice of God saying, give me your heart, give me your life, even if you don't understand everything there is to understand about it, trust me and take the first step and I'll take the rest. Would you do that right now? What we're going to do is we're going to sing. 
And those of us who have not stained our clothes, we're walking in white, we're just going to build it out like Jesus is going to return. We're just going to practice heaven here on earth. And while we're practicing heaven on earth, I just want to encourage you, if there's something you need to do with God, do it. And here's what I mean. Just so we can be crystal clear, there's no questioning what exactly I'm saying. If you've never stood up and said, I love Jesus, he's my Lord and my Savior, and I need him as my Lord and my Savior, today is that day. Today is that day. And it might mean before you leave today that you need to get baptized. You didn't bring the clothes, we got them. Don't worry about it. We'll send you home with clothes. It'll be great. Some of you in here, you've walked through the steps of Christianity. You've given your life to Jesus. You've repented. You've even been baptized. But to be honest, you're faking everybody else out, but you're not faking God. And you know he's calling you to repent. And to you, I just want to say, do not leave until you've done that. So I'll stand and I'll pray. Oh, great God and King, we need you and we love you. Father, we know that Jesus is going to come back at some moment. You're going to let us know when that is, <laughs> the moment he shows up. And between now and then, whatever that day is, God, I just pray right here, right now, would you stir in our hearts? Would you move in us? God, would you... Rebuke those of us who need rebuked and corrected, God, that we might walk in faithfulness to you. And for those of us who have repented and are walking faithfully to you, God, would you just pour out your grace, your mercy, and your love upon us that on the last day we wouldn't hear, away from me, I don't know you, but instead would hear, well done, well done. God, for people in this room right now who just can't wait to leave so they can avoid the words that have been spoken that you're trying to whisper to their heart, God, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you convict them of their sin and to show them that humility brings life and freedom. God, I pray right now that they would soften their hearts and respond to your voice. And God, the rest of us just worshiping you, would you receive our praise? In Jesus' name.